You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, a big post-earnings pop for Meta in sharp contrast to its plunge last quarter. We'll discuss how Facebook is holding on to its users. Plus, we'll talk to Jason Goldman. He was part of the founding team at Twitter and an early board member. What does he think about Elon Musk swooping in and his version of free speech? Goldman joins us this hour. And we'll talk to the co-founder and CEO of 23andMe, Ann Wojcicki, about their new play in telehealth, progress on drug discovery, and her vision for building a healthcare company unlike anything we've seen before. We will get to all of that in a moment, but first, big tech earnings continue. Meta and Qualcomm out. I want to stay with Meta and bring in Angelo Zeno of CFRA. So this after uh, Facebook daily users declining for the first time in a decade last quarter, that number growing this quarter. Angelo, is this a blip or is this the long-term thing? Yeah, listen, I think this is um, really kind of meta. Just it, it seems like three months ago, just kind of really setting the bar extremely low here. Um, and, you know, they were able to kind of come through with flying colors in many respects. I mean, despite the fact that you kind of had the Russia-Ukraine war ongoing, um, softness out in Europe, um, this was a company that essentially grew 6% on the daily active user side of things year over year. Um, overall, you know, pretty good numbers, I'd say, um, on that front, uh, growing it across every region outside of Europe, and you kind of have to give them a pass out in Europe. So um, I think, you know, I, I don't necessarily think this is a blip. I think this is a company that's now going to continue to see growth 
uh, on the DAU side, but it'll probably be kind of very um, modest in nature. So um, whether or not we continue to see 6%, who knows, maybe it'll be closer to, to low mid, you know, low single digit growth. But nonetheless, I think it alleviates the big fear out there, which was the fact that we could have seen uh, potentially negative uh, DAU type numbers um, in the coming quarters. Now, Mark Zuckerberg in the earnings release saying we made progress this quarter across a number of key company priorities and we remain confident in the long-term opportunities and growth that our product roadmap will unlock. Another significant point here is that they reduced their expenses forecast. A lot of analysts and investors have been pretty skeptical about the amount of money uh, that Facebook and Meta are pouring into their virtual reality dreams. How big a deal is this? So they essentially left the CapEx number unchanged, right? But in, in terms to your point, the CapEx number definitely cut uh, a bit here. I think that's definitely a positive sign. One of our biggest fears was um, the fact that they were just spending way too much on that initiative. It was essentially going to squeeze the, the margins um, for the foreseeable uh, future because of the slowing growth on the ad side of things. So. Listen, ultimately, I think it's a good thing that they're tempering some of those uh, exp expense growth numbers. Um, nonetheless, it's going to continue to weigh. They, they are spending significantly. They will need to continue to spend significantly. I also think it's important to note here, I mean, listen, they do have, they continue to have a problem in the sense that um, they're catering, in, in our view, to essentially the, the wrong um, ecosystem in the sense that they have to get younger and they have to get younger quick. And the, that's the whole point of the whole metaverse, right? And um, that as a result, you need to spend aggressively on that side of things. They've got an opportunity here because it looks like companies like an Apple and Sony are kind of pushing out some of their initiatives in the metaverse into 2023. So um, I wouldn't necessarily take the foot fully off the gas here from them, um, but nonetheless, they are spending aggressively and I think that is the right move still. Investors are focusing so much on the good news here and not the bad. Revenue did miss estimates. Their guidance on revenue is also a little light, and this in the context of uh, not great ad numbers from Snap, from YouTube. You know, what are we going to be seeing here over the longer term? I think it's all expectations, to be honest with you. I mean, this is a company that was trading less than 13 times our 2023 estimate. So. The, the, the bar, again, was set extremely low. We're talking a, a depressed of evaluation, essentially trading at a valuation where, um, you know, many people have left the company for dead. So um, the reason I think you've kind of seen this change of sentiment here after hours is because it looks like, at least for the time being, that type of scenario has been left off the table, despite the fact that, the, you know, the, the, the revenue guidance um, for Q2 specifically, is below what, where the street had expect, expected. I think there was just a lot more um, hate kind of going on uh, going into this quarter. Well, debt is a strong word for a company with 3 billion users, even if ad growth misses estimates. Angela Zeno of CFRA, thank you so much. As we dig deeper into Elon Musk's $44 billion Twitter takeover, we are learning more about what Musk can and can't do. He can't 
tweet anything that, quote, disparages the company or any of its representatives, a rule he seems to have already violated. There's also a $1 billion breakup fee if the deal doesn't go through. For more on what it all means, we are joined by Bloomberg's Max Chafkin. So, Max, Musk has already tweeted some disparaging remarks about Vijigade, uh, Twitter's chief legal counsel. This in response to an article about her crying over the deal in a meeting, a Politico article. How likely is it that this kind of behavior is actually going to get Musk into regulatory trouble? I think it's pretty unlikely, and, and, and I think that has to do with kind of this, this is going to come down to your definition of, dis, of disparaging, and first of all, whether Twitter is going to argue that it's disparaging. I think, um, you know, Musk can say, hey, I'm just commenting on this, you know, public debate, and yeah, there are a bunch of uh, trolls coming in and, and, and coming after this Twitter exec, you know, in, in harassing and uncomfortable, threatening perhaps ways, but that, you know, he, Musk didn't do that, and I think that, that would be his argument, and I, and I have a feeling that that's going to hold, if not, you know, water in the public uh, arena of public opinion, it'll hold legal and regulatory water. So I don't think there's likely to be any kind of uh, any consequences in terms of the legal risk. I do think this does raise questions about, you know, what kind of company is Elon Musk going to run? What is it when you're going after your own executives, a company that these people are going to work for you, uh, you know, they're going to be responsible to you. It just doesn't seem like um, the, the, the smartest thing to do. Right, and of course, there's a contingent of people that are not excited about this and a contingent of people at Twitter that are very excited about this. I mean, you know, Musk's whole MO is playing with fire. I mean, can we expect anything but more of these kinds of tweets until this deal closes, which, you know, it could be a few months. We've seen Musk, you know, basically fight with the, secure, the SEC for the last four years or so, and he's not backing down. You know, just a couple days ago, he was, he was, you know, sort of reiterating his lack of respect for the San Francisco office of the SEC. So, you you know, this is somebody who there there are the rules, and then 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 there's what he's going to do. And obviously, he's become very successful pushing the envelope. I think he's going to continue to do that. They, they clearly, with this agreement, tried to create some carve out so he wouldn't like immediately violate the agreement. They said, you know, Elon can tweet about the deal. You know, we won't, but Elon can. Um, but of course, he's he's going to be himself, and he's going to find ways to push the boundaries. All right, well, we're going to be following it all tweet by tweet. Max Chafkin, thank you. I want to continue this conversation with a man who knows a lot about Twitter and its history. He was part of the founding team at Twitter and a board member from 2007 to 2010, Jason Goldman. Joining me now in an exclusive interview, Jason, good to have you here. I know this arouses a lot of emotions. Now that you've had a couple of days to digest this, how are you feeling about Elon Musk buying Twitter? I mean, it's just a disappointment because I think the company really could use great stewardship at this point, and what he's revealing is just how unserious a person he is about both his ideas for the product and the philosophy that underpins it. So I think some would say it's a disappointment that Twitter hasn't grown faster, racked up more users, become more influential. How would you respond to that? A hundred percent. I mean, like, you know, the, the business performance of the company uh, has always sort of dragged behind the cultural importance of the company. We always have known that it has a much bigger footprint with journalists and with media, celebrities, musicians, that it has this huge cultural footprint. Uh, and I think that's what made it an attractive uh, opportunity for Elon. So what do you think is missing from the conversation? We've seen pundits talking about this now for three weeks. We've heard from Elon himself, a lot of debates. But, you know, what do you think is missing given your vantage point and history with this company going back 15 years? 
So, I mean, I think the, the biggest problem is the free speech framing that he continues to use uh, to talk about what he wants to do with the product. It just reveals a very naive, unserious approach to the content moderation issues he will face. Uh, and I say it's unserious because his own standard of we should just allow for anything that's not disallowed by law is self-defeating because he's talked about wanting to remove uh, anonymous content. He's talked about wanting to remove bots. Both of those things are examples of content that is not, you know, that, that are not, there's no First Amendment carve out for, uh, for uh, anonymity. You can definitely express yourself uh, anonymously. Uh, and so it just shows that he hasn't really kind of put the dots together on what what needs to what needs to happen in this space so let's talk about that a little bit more because we had a very lively debate here on the show yesterday with david sachs and tim o'brien our bloomberg opinion columnist i want you to take a quick listen to that exchange the platform is absolutely rife with bots and i think elon has already promised he's going to crack down on bots and he has expertise at his disposal, the premier AI uh, engineers, who he can deploy to solve that problem. I actually think but that Elon's going to make... But isn't anonymous speech free speech, too? Some would not, if it's fake, not if it's fake speech. So, so the, the first... Hold on a second. Let, let me finish. When you put bots on Twitter and pretend to be someone you're not, when you pretend... When you basically violate the authenticity requirement, you are basically perpetrating a kind of fraud. That is not free speech. That's fake speech. It is perfectly fair game under any kind of free speech policy to take down those kinds of bots. And I fully expect that Elon will be far more effective at doing that than the current management of Twitter because they've been unable to do that. Jason, what's your reaction to that? I mean, that's a standard that is in no way supported by free speech uh, legislation. That's no, no way supported by a constitutional standard of what free speech is. Or it's just a notion that he's exposing that anonymous speech somehow doesn't get free speech protections. There's no case law that establishes that's true. He's just purporting that to be true. Uh, and moreover, if that's a standard, what other things would he look to remove? Are we going to remove, for example, um, or are we going to are we going to allow back on the platform uh, people who harass parents of children who are murdered at Sandy Hook? Um, because even if they if even if they use their real names. Like, this just isn't a serious standard that's being articulated, and he hasn't thought through, and David hasn't thought through, all of the implications that would come from adopting it. So by free speech, Elon says he means that which matches the law. I am against censorship that goes far beyond the law. What are your biggest fears about Elon Musk taking over Twitter? So the type of content that Twitter has cleaned up in the last, you know, six years, seven years, uh, include things that were in response to real-world occurrences. You know, you go back to 2015 and you look at the rife of uh, content that was being used by ultra extremists, uh, in, in including ISIS, to recruit people off of Twitter. And so there was beheading videos and just content in general that was meant to appeal to an audience to recruit people to ultra violence. Are we going to allow that back on? Those acts may be illegal, but the content about it is not illegal. There's no there's no First Amendment uh, there's no First Amendment rule that says that you cannot use you uh, speech in that way. So there's no case law that would support Elon's contention that that content has to be removed because of legal reasons. So I, I just don't think that standard holds water when you look at the type of things that he is going to want to still not be on the platform. Now, Jack Dorsey, and obviously I know you worked closely with Jack in the earliest days, he thanked Elon for getting Twitter out of a, quote, impossible situation, to which you responded with a meme of a guy in a hot dog suit saying, it was an impossible situation, says founder in control of company for the last decade. What are you trying to say there? 
I mean, Jack has been either the executive chairman with control of the company or the CEO since October of 2010. He's had the most direct role in shaping the course of the company for the past 12 years. When he wrote his resignation letter in just of November of last year, he said, I worked hard to ensure the company can break away from its founding and its founders. And so to now say, you know, to now be only less than five months from that and say solving for the problem of it being a company, Elon is the singular solution I trust. What ha what happened in the last five months? I thought it had been established in this trajectory that was able to br break away from the founding and its founders. And now Elon Musk, someone who's never been involved before except for being a troll on the platform, is the singular solution to the trajectory of the company? That seems curious. Do you think, Jack, I mean, do, do, do you blame Jack? Uh, for anything here, you know, is there something you think he should be answering to? Well, he said, I mean, you know, he, the, the biggest thing, the biggest thing just concretely today is that Elon is using the platform to troll the employees of the company that Jack's led, uh, you know, if, for the past 12 years. Uh, and that's, you know, that's Vidya and that's other people in the trust and safety organization. And, and you can absolutely critique decisions, content moderation decisions that have been made by the company. But if you absolutely should not allow the prospective owner of the company to troll your employees um, for the decisions that they made. And that's really what's going on here and puts the lie to the free speech argument. Elon's not interested in debating this question of, you know, what content should be allowed or not. He is simply turning his army of fans on these employees and allowing them to be targets of racist abuse and threats. That's not the Lincoln-Douglas debate. That's not Cicero in the forum. That's not the marketplace of ideas. That's just using the product as an active troll to harass and target employees. And Jack and the board absolutely should have the back of their employees in that case. So that's just a concrete example of something happening right now. Twitter was often, even in its earliest days, overshadowed by this sort of Game of Thrones drama. I think even you yeah. would agree with that. And and I wonder, do you think, do you, there has been speculation that Jack uh, perhaps had something to do with this and before maybe even Elon Musk started buying shares. What do you think of that theory? I mean, you know, so there's, I think there's, uh, the, the problem with most conspiracies is that they're they're too clever for anyone to keep secret. Uh, and in the case of, you know, Jack or anyone else on the board actually working with Elon to or, or kind of originate this deal, that obviously would trip a number of legal red lines that I don't think folks would be very comfortable doing and would therefore even just increase the chances that it would leak. I do think it's I do think it's possible slash likely. And I take Jack at his word when he said, oh, this Elon s solution looks like the only solution available, that he was supportive of Elon coming in and owning the company, probably because he felt like, you know, he no longer was going to be involved. So this was another way, another way out. I would just point out that's in direct distinction and in contradiction to what he said five months ago when he said the company was in great hands and he had no concerns about stepping away. What have you heard from current Twitter employees? What's it like working at Twitter right now? You know, I don't know. I don't want to speak for, for current employees. I will say for former employees, it's been uh, and, you know, those of us who were there from the, you know, sort of early times, uh, it's it's just depressing. It's it's sad to see this thing uh, that was built be uh, be looked after by someone who hasn't really thought through the issues, hasn't really kind of taken care uh, to to do the research on on what uh, on what product is they need to build. He's you know in addition to the free speech questions, he's also just not articulating a coherent product vision of what he wants to do with the product or why he was interested in buying it. And so that's just uh, it's a disappointing end uh, end point to this part of the Twitter journey. 
Well, uh, we will see if that comes with time. Jason Goldman, part of the founding team at Twitter, thank you for bringing your voice to this conversation. Appreciate it. Robinhood is in need of its own Robinhood-style rescue. Less than a year after going public, the online brokerage has racked up more than $2 billion of losses, and it's now dismissing 9% of its workforce. 3,800 people work there now. Robinhood said that after a period of hyper-growth in 2020 and early 21, it ended up hiring too many people, leading to duplicate roles and, quote, more layers and complexity than optimal. SpaceX has launched four astronauts to the International Space Station. This is the first NASA crew make up of an equal number of men and women, including the first black woman to live and work in space for a long-term mission, Jessica Watkins. They'll arrive at the space station 16 hours after launch. And coming up, we are joined by Ann Wojcicki, the co-founder and CEO of 23andMe, and their big bet on telehealth. Plus, the latest on Meta's results, the stock spiking after plunging last time around. That is next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome back to Bloomer Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Well, the pandemic continues to change how we view certain businesses in the world of healthcare, definitely one of them. 23andMe, the genetic testing company, is diving into telemedicine to help customers better understand their genetic reports. Joining me now is Ann Wojcicki. She is the CEO and co-founder of 23andMe, and always good to have you here on the show. Oh, yeah. So you're taking your first steps towards giving 23andMe customers access to telehealth to help them understand um, what all of this data you're giving back to them actually means. How exactly does it work? Well, I think one of the most um, interesting things I've learned over the last 16 years is that everyone 
sees a world where you're going to get your genetic information and it's going to be part of your everyday primary care experience. But the reality is most physicians are not trained um, it's not accessible, it's not part of the medical system. And we've learned, we have over 12 million customers, we've learned over time that our customers are getting this information and they take it to their primary care physicians and they largely don't know what to do with that information. And so there's this opportunity for 23andMe to really solve that problem and actually become that consult to other primary care physicians or other specialists by really providing and delivering genomic medicine and how our customers and how everyone else out there can learn about their DNA and say, I'm going to take proactive preventative steps and have whether that changes some of the guidelines like um, getting a colonoscopy or whether or not that's going to actually influence how they're wearing sunglasses or how they are eating and exercising. How significant will telehealth be to 23andMe's future business? Like, do you see this being a significant driver of the vision and revenue? I think that preventative care is absolutely something people do every day. Your health is a sum of what your actions are every single day. And I think that people get genetic information, you get any kind of health information, and you have to spread it out throughout your life. You have to continuously implement it. And so what I find, and part of the, the 23andMe Plus product that we, that we launched about roughly over a year ago, was about additional content. And we've always said the next step for us is actually saying there's additional services that are part of that. Is that going to be um, telemedicine? Is it going to be the ability to chat with a physician? Is it going to be access to pharmacy um, and integration with you know, your genetic data with pharmacy? or is it potentially going to be access to blood tests that are relevant because of your genetic information? So I think that this infrastructure is a really core part of the future experience where customers are going to have 23andMe part of their entire lifetime of healthcare. Now, you have released some eye-opening research about COVID-19. You found that the loss of uh, the sense of taste and smell was tied to genes, that mm -hmm. if you had type O blood, for example, you were less likely to test positive. Are you still looking into COVID-19? Are we going to see 23andMe make more COVID-related discoveries? We are, and it's something I have been pushing more and more, and just personally, I hear of all kinds of stories on long COVID. So a lot of our emphasis right now has been on long COVID. We have over one and a half million people who have taken our COVID survey. Um, you know, over 16,000 of them have had, uh, were hospitalized and had serious cases, um, large numbers of people who have long COVID. So we're actively continuing to look at that data and we'll continue to publish on it. It's something that's obviously, it's very top of mind. And I think understanding the genetics behind why we all have such variable responses is going to be really important for us in managing it going forward. What's the progress on your drug discovery business and the likelihood that 23andMe will help us, you know, get closer to a cure for cancer? Well, I think people don't always realize drug discovery is incredibly hard. Most, you know, most programs fail. There's over 90% failure in, in drug discovery. And so one of the only things that has ever been shown to increase the likelihood of success is starting with a genetic, a human genetic foundation. So if you have a human genetic foundation to your drug discovery program, you're more than twice as likely to be successful at actually getting onto the market. So what's so unusual about 23andMe is that we have this incredible 
you know, community of, you know, data set of information where we can make all kinds of discoveries on all different disease areas. And what the therapeutics team is, they, they go through all of this data, they sort of whittle it down into where are we most likely to be successful, where is there an unmet need, and then we're actually working on that with a, you know, in partnership with GSK on getting these programs actually out to everybody. So is the hope that 23andMe is going to be a big pharma company someday? What's a fair comparison? Uh, I love this, Emily. Like, one of the biggest challenges is people have a hard time putting us in a box because we're not telemedicine, we're not just a diagnostics, and we're not just a pharma. Like, we have this comprehensive holistic system where we say 23andMe is about engaging individuals in their health. And at the same time, those individuals always have the ability to opt into research. Over 80% of our customers opt into research. And with that, we're making discoveries. And those discoveries either can go back to our customers and that's where Lemonade and the acquisition of our, of our telehealth platform and the ability to engage customers, they will benefit in that way. Or some of those insights are going to go to our therapeutic side and we are going to continue to make discoveries that hopefully one day are going to go back to our customers. And we're gonna have potentially a new way of even approaching how we get those therapeutics out to our customers. Now, of course, 23andMe recently went public via SPAC, and I'm curious what the transition from being a private company to be a public company has been like for you. You know, we've seen tech stocks in general and equities in general really take a leg down in this macro environment, you know, and, it, you know, 23andMe has as well. Um, you know, what's your reaction to that, and, and what's been your experience dealing with public market investors? I love, you know, I'm really happy that we, we went through the process. We are public now. We have the ability to, you know, to do more acquisitions, the ability to actually access markets. Like all of this was, you know, it was the right time and the right place for us to go public. And what I've been focused on now is really just the long-term mission of the company. The long-term vision of this company is that every single person in the world is going to have genetics that's part of their care. Like it's almost one of those things that every every, every researcher, every healthcare professional um, talks about. It's inevitable and it's obvious. Genetics is gonna become a critical part of healthcare in the future. And so 23andMe is absolutely that leading platform that is going to drive that and make that happen. So I have not been focused on the day-to-day -day of, you know, of, of the stock market. Markets are obviously quite dynamic right now, but what I'm focused on is that long-term future where every single person is going to have genetics as a critical part of their care. Ann Wojcicki, CEO of 23andMe, thank you as always. Thank you, Emily. Us. Good to see you. Good to see you too. It is time now for our crypto report, and as the FTX SALT conference is underway in the Bahamas, let's take a moment to look at the world of DeFi. Our crypto contributor, Shanali Basik, here for more. Shanali, what caught your eye? I want to talk to you, Emily, about DeFi, because DeFi here is supposed to be the big bank killer, the big way for peer-to-peer -peer transactions to happen, things to happen outside of the normal financial system. It was also the big trade that Mike Novogratz at the end of last year said would be the big trade for this year. But it has been down quite a bit. If you look at a DeFi index we have between Bloomberg and Galaxy, it's almost 72% down on the year. Now, it tracks Bitcoin to some degree, although the moves are 
much more volatile. So if Bitcoin is up 2%, for example, you also have a rise in other DeFi assets. Uniswap is up more than 1%. Aave is up more than 6% over the last 24 hours. So it's time now, I think, to dive a little deeper into how DeFi is changing among the asset class. Of course, there are a lot of projects to look into, Emily. All right, Shanali, stay with us. We're going to move into Zero X Labs, a DeFi exchange infrastructure provider. Just raised seventy million dollars, led by Greylock. Here to talk about that and more, Greylock partner Sarah Guo, joining us live from the FTX Salt Crypto Conference in the Bahamas. Sarah, first of all, what's the mood and scene in the Bahamas in the crypto community? It's great to be here. There's a lot of innovation happening. And I think what's been really interesting is seeing the confluence of uh, crypto entrepreneurs, investors, regulators, traditional finance. Um, so you just see the industry maturing. So talk to us about Zero X. How do you see this company challenging uh, incumbents as big as Coinbase? So as, as you mentioned, um, uh, DeFi is growing and innovation is happening on decentralized exchanges that are peer-to-peer, -peer, right? Um, and the volume over the past year grew much faster on these decentralized exchanges than on centralized exchanges. But then these decentralized um, transactions, they, they bring their challenges. And just like Web2 needed open protocol standards to succeed, like HTTP, so does Web3. And ZeroX is that open, most trusted protocol for the exchange of tokenized value. It's a public good. And ZeroX Labs builds commercial products on top of that public good. Now, where was, you know, it's funny. We used to hate talking about regulation and finance because it was boring. But at the same time now, it is central to the emergence of this ecosystem. Big exchanges are struggling with this. How do DeFi exchanges think about the emerging regulation ahead? Uh, yeah, I can't speak to all of them. Um, but what, what I would say, my, my personal opinion is that we're going to get to a point where these rails that support innovation and um, more uh, liquid 24-hour-a-day exchange um, for lower cost for end users and more accessibility, um, they will be combined with appropriate consumer protections. And what I'd love to see is um, the U.S. federal government take a stance, as we have historically, uh, of, like a leadership stance around financial innovation, uh, something that has made our economy um, a, a major player in the past with, for example, the rise of electronic trade and work the CFTC has done in the past. You know, what about self-moderating a little bit here? Because, you know, while DeFi has its promise, there's a lot of worry about rug pulls. There's a lot of worry about things that could go wrong for consumers, and we've seen it a lot over the last year or so. So if you're a consumer thinking about DeFi, you know, how do you look for the right places to go? Yeah, I, I would say um, you're absolutely right. I think that there's two sides of this coin, or I guess three, right? You have regulation, then you have platforms that can design products, even decentralized products that are um, uh, safer and abuse aware for consumers. And then there's just a huge component of consumer education uh, around this new realm of finance. Now, Sam Bagman-Fried of FTX had a very spirited take on what's driving crypto investments right now. He said it's FOMO. I'm curious what your take is on that. Is the fear of missing out really um, what's driving all this competition for deals? Uh, I, I think that... Um 
you know, we at Greylock like to believe, and I have a ton of respect for Sam, we're investors in FTX, but at Greylock, we are trying to make first principles decisions independently about the most important technology platforms of the future. Right. And so we operate in a competitive market and we believe that many of our competitors are smart people. So we pay attention to what they're doing, but we would never invest simply because somebody else thought it was a good idea. Well, it seems like metaverse, the metaverse, is the next buzzword and could be the next driver of FOMO. And I'm curious, given, of course, Greylock's you know, early investments in Facebook, how you're thinking about that and especially the crossover uh, of the metaverse into the world of crypto, DeFi, and all of these big themes we're talking about here. Yeah, we probably think about it from a slightly broader perspective. We made um, two investments recently um, in Magic Eden, which is the fastest growing NFT marketplace around this idea that digital assets um, on Solana, but on any chain are going to become much more important and a part of people's lives. And they're going to have digital environments. Um, we also made an investment in a company called Portals, uh, which is one of the leading uh, metaverse projects. But in both of these cases, we're really focused on understanding you know, what the user demand is, and if that is community creation or uh, a virtual place for social interaction, we're really oriented around that versus speculation. But we definitely think that there's going to be more and more, you know, digital interpersonal interaction. Sarah, you've been at Goldman Sachs before Greylock. You know how this works. What's going to happen in terms of the convergence of traditional finance and DeFi? There's got to be some space where the two combine. Yeah, I think that this is going to be a massive boon to the ecosystem as more and more traditional finance players move into the crypto ecosystem. Um, because I think the, the greatest promise of crypto is actually like accessible, trustless markets um, that are more efficient. And the big institutional players, be they hedge funds or banks or market makers, they provide um, they provide liquidity and efficiency in markets uh, and help them operate better. And so I think that a lot of traditional finance organizations have been waiting for increasing regulatory clarity. But I'm really encouraged that you see uh, firms like Goldman Sachs or Citadel say explicitly we're making moves into crypto and we feel more comfortable about the risks. I think that will make the entire ecosystem uh, more liquid and more mature. Sarah, you're in the Bahamas. A lot of people are there. About 2,000 people are there right now. What's your biggest takeaway? I think it's really what you said, which is we're at a point of, you know, the um, maturity in the ecosystem where the most important thing is actually figuring out how to enable institutions and the next wave of consumers to enter the ecosystem and use the rails of crypto um, in ways that are, um, you know, safe and legal. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm really encouraged that there's so much discussion of that at the FTX conference. All right. Greylock partner Sarah Guo, along with Bloomberg, Shanali Basik. Thank you both. Coming up, more on Meta's earnings results. Did the social media giant just turn things around or is it not going to be so easy? More on that next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. 
Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I think that the cycle here between investment and um, you know, meaningful enough revenue growth to be near or, or very profitable is going to be is going to be long. Um, I think it's going to be longer for Reality Labs than for a lot of the traditional software that we've built. Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, or I should say Meta, I want to get back to Meta's results with the company adding more users than projected in the first quarter. I want to see uh, now if the company is really turning itself around for the long term and bring in Jasmine Emberg of Insider Intelligence. So look, Jasmine, last quarter, uh, first drop in DAUs for the first time in a decade. This quarter, they grow. What's your takeaway? Well, it's certainly a good sign, especially given what happened last quarter. But the reality is that there are still some very real challenges ahead for Meta, particularly when it comes to its ad business. There's the changes in iOS and combine that with, you know, brand safety concerns uh, surrounding the war in Ukraine, as well as broader brand safety concerns in general on Facebook and Instagram and the rise of TikTok. It's really creating this perfect storm that is heading straight for Meta's ad revenues. So do you think this is, you know, in terms of the user growth, is, is this a blip? Well, I was just listening in on the earnings call, and what was clear is that there is a huge focus right now for Meta on video. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that social activity is really shifting towards video, and that's been accelerated by TikTok. Of course, uh, Facebook and Instagram both have a TikTok competitor in Reels, and that was really Zuckerberg's focus in the top of the call. Um, and they're trying to find ways to be able to use video to continue to draw in engagement and users. Well, and Facebook has tried video before. I mean, this isn't the first time they've uh, experimented with video products. Do you think they can get this right? It's a great question, and it's something that we can only tell over time. I think, you know, Reels has taken off uh, much better on Instagram than it has on Facebook, and a lot of that has to do with the different user base that Instagram and Facebook has. Instagram's user base is also aging now, but it still tends to be younger uh, than Facebook's is, and so that's one reason why video seems to be a little bit more successful there. 
So let's talk about what you think this signifies about long-term ad revenue growth. Because, you know, obviously we see uh, Facebook struggling, we saw Snap struggle, and YouTube revenue uh, came in yesterday, ad revenue came in light. You know, what's your takeaway as to how that's going to evolve through the rest of the year, given there's no sign the macro environment is changing? There's still a war in Ukraine. We're still facing inflation. Yeah, look, there's always going to be different types of macro headwinds. And I think, you know, one of the biggest things that a lot of these companies need to focus on is in innovation. You know, TikTok really entered the scene and has taken it by storm. We're seeing it bring in users and add revenues. And of course, the biggest threat to long-term growth for any of these social platforms, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, or Snapchat, is a decline or a slowdown in its user growth. So by focusing on ways that they can bring in new users and continue to keep that engagement on these platforms, that's the way that they're going to be able to continue attracting advertisers there because at the end of the day, advertisers go where their consumers or customers are. So what are you watching for when it comes to Meta this quarter? Well, I'll be watching to see a couple of things. I mean, one is to see how Reels develops. Again, it was a huge point um, that Zuckerberg was making in the beginning of the earnings call. There's a lot of focus on the metaverse right now, but it's, it's an incredibly buzzy term. But I really, truly believe that the immediate competition, again, for social media right now is in video. And whoever is able to rise to the top in, um, in video is going to be the leader in this space. All right, Jasmine Enberg, Insider Intelligence, thank you so much for joining us. Meantime, some of the biggest stars on Twitch might start to see some revenue cuts. People familiar with the matter say the live streaming website is pondering changes to how it pays top talent by offering incentives for streamers to run more ads, for instance, or reduce the proportion of subscription fees doled out to the biggest stars. This move intended to boost profits could alienate some of the biggest names. That is the risk. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Tomorrow, Cristiano Amon, CEO of Qualcomm, will be joining me talking about their earnings report, quite strong. And we're also watching results from Apple, Twitter, and Amazon. Big day. Don't forget to check out our podcast. You can find it everywhere you get your podcasts. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg.